Well, good morning. Welcome, everybody. It's good to see you. Um, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Tim Adams. I go by TA. Um, we have another Tim that's a pastor on staff, our lead pastor. Um, we are glad you're with us this morning, and I just want to acknowledge quickly, uh, if you are new, our lead pastor, Tim, is on sabbatical, and he'll be on sabbatical for another, uh, I think, six weeks. And uh, he's the guy that typically fills the pulpit in terms of responsibilities for teaching our congregation probably about 80% of the time. And so if you're new, we want you to know he's um, going to be out of the office for a while. But if you're here, if you've been a part of LCF, I want to take this moment and say, just a reminder, it's a joy to be able to come and do this uh, and gather as a church body. It's a joy to be able to give Tim and Melody a break And I want to encourage you to be praying for them that there is rest and rejuvenation in the eight weeks that he and Melody are are, um, away from their normal responsibilities of the church. And so we're grateful uh, to be able to do that for them and provide that space for them. And so I just encourage you to be praying along with us for them. Um, This morning, Ben's introduction to Into Communion uh, and that wrestling that the Israelites were questioning Uh, Is this God's judgment? It's almost like that passage ties directly to my passage this morning, because it does. He he was supposed to teach that a week ago. Um, But this morning's message, Jesus brings to light some assurance in that wrestling that they're going through. And so as we begin our time, there's a topic, and I, I almost could have called this the grace of the kingdom of God. But there's, I just, I'm titled it The Kingdom of God because this is a topic that rises a bunch, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, but overall in the Gospels as a whole. There, it surfaces over 130 times in the Gospels. And then after the Gospels, it only shows up 34 more times. And so what, what does that tell us about this topic? It primarily points to the fact that Jesus is the one bringing the kingdom of God to light. He is the one that's making a big deal of this subject. Um, The disciples don't really fully understand what's going on when he talks about the kingdom of God. We see that throughout scripture or throughout the gospels, but in particular, when you get into the Acts in chapter one, as Jesus is preparing them to leave, one of the questions, one of the main things, they go to him and say, are you... In in verse 6, they say, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus is patient and kind with them and answers them. But for context, that is not what Jesus has been talking about. He's not been talking about the kingdom of Israel. He's been talking about the kingdom of God. You see, the Israelites have been waiting for a Messiah. They have been waiting, and in their mind it built to, this is going to be someone who's going to lead us to freedom away from our oppressors. In Jesus' time, away from the Romans. They were, he was going to set them free and reestablish that Old Testament covenant that you know, the promised land is theirs. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 this is something bigger. The kingdom of God is the theme that permeates Luke chapter 13, and it really kind of keeps going through the rest of the gospel of Luke. Um, so what is it? I felt like it'd be important to take a minute to talk about that before we just jump into our text. And I want to try to make this as simple as I can. 
But scripture tells us the kingdom of God essentially comes in two phases. The first phase is something that's harder to grasp. It's a little bit more invisible. It's something that's taking place internal. He describes it in chapter 17 of the Gospel of Luke that he tells the Pharisees, it's something that's in your midst. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But this first phase of the kingdom of God is marked by Jesus, the king who reigns in the hearts of the person who accepts Jesus Christ as their savior. It is the people who come to faith and mark what is Christianity. To proclaim the kingdom of God is to preach the gospel, to proclaim the good news of salvation. It's the explanation of how we enter the kingdom of God. So this first phase is a gathering phase. And it's entirely orchestrated by Jesus. And you and I get to have a a small part of what that is. The second phase is a future phase of the kingdom of God, which we play no part in. It's known as the messianic age or the millennial kingdom It's where Jesus comes back and brings in and ushers in establishment of the new heavens and the new earth. Our text today tries to reveal a correct understanding of the kingdom of God and what happens when we enter that invisible element of the kingdom of God at salvation. The parables that are mentioned here in our text are to provide assurance that experiencing the visible kingdom of God in our future is going to happen. Since God's purpose in this world is to save a people for himself and to renew the world for that people, his kingly rule implies that that saving and redeeming activity is his and his alone, and he does it on our behalf. That's why the New Testament calls the gospel good news. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 13 following just what Ben shared, verses 10 through 21. And I want us to see how Jesus brings some assurance to this question of what is the kingdom of God. There's two major things that I hope you walk away with this morning in in this message. And that is the followers of Christ are to play a role in making the invisible kingdom visible. And we are to trust that the Lord is purposefully and intentionally moving in his timing. So let's read our passage this morning. As he was teaching in the synagogues on Sabbath, a woman was there who had been disabled by a spirit. For over 18 years, she was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called out to her, woman, you are free of your disability. And then he laid his hands on her and instantly she was restored and began to glorify God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, responded by telling the crowd, there are six days when work should be done. Therefore, come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, Hypocrites, doesn't each one of you untie his ox or donkey from the feeding trough on the Sabbath and lead it to water? Satan has bound this woman, a daughter of Abraham, for 18 years. Shouldn't she be untied from this bondage on the Sabbath day? 
When he had said these things, all of his adversaries were humiliated. But the whole crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things he was doing. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And what can I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the sky nested in its branches. Again, he said, what can I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like leaven that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until all of it was leavened. Father, would you meet us here this morning, God? Lord, would you bring that assurance that this text provides us? Lord, speak your words through me, not mine. God, would you be with us over the next 30 minutes or so? Lead us and guide us, Jesus. We love you. Amen. A couple of observations about the the story of the healing of the woman. This is the last time in the Gospels that Jesus is presented in the, in the, or is present, not presented, that he's present in a synagogue in the Gospels. It's the last time that Jesus was teaching, or at least welcomed to teach in the synagogue. And again, we see Jesus healing on the Sabbath, something we've seen him do a few different times. And we also see, again, I should say yet again, the Pharisees concern for tradition and Sabbath law, and they miss God's overwhelming compassion. You see, we don't know a lot about the healed woman in our text today. I do think there's a couple of appropriate assumptions or conclusions that we can make. Um, One of those is that she wasn't there specifically seeking Jesus to heal her. I think if that were the case, that either Luke or one of the other gospel writers would have highlighted the fact that she was there seeking him to be healed. I think it's also probably fair to conclude that this synagogue was her church home, a place that she was regularly present at. Simply arriving for her Sunday morning worship Little did she know how the Lord would meet her that morning. And the leaders of the synagogue missed it. The nature of the woman's health is left to a bit of speculation. What the text does tell us is that her ailment is connected to an unclean spirit. And that was what was disabling her. She was bent over, could not straighten up. And she had been this way for 18 years. Before my wife and I, Kelsey and I, moved to Kansas City, we lived at Lake of the Ozarks, and I actually knew a guy who walked around like this. Now, they, they, it was for very different reasons. He was a lifelong concrete worker that, like, wore this pain as, like, a badge of honor. But he literally, like, walked everywhere he went, and he would try to talk to you, and he would cock his head up to the side to talk to you. He was never able to stand tall, to look a person in the eye when he was having a conversation, you always wondered what was going on. It was a very difficult way to live your life. Charles Spurgeon provides some commentary on this woman's condition, and I want to share it with you. He says, for 18 years, she has not gazed upon the sun. For 18 years, no star of night had gladdened her eyes. 
Her face was drawn downward towards the dust, and all the light of her life was dim. She walked about as if she were searching for a grave, and I do not doubt she often felt that it would have been gladness to have found one. You can see her slowly moving along, bent double. Hers was a painful walk, but she came at Christ's call. Just consider for a moment how much easier it would have been for her to stay home. How painful the process to get ready to go to church would have been. Her youthful beauty now disfigured by this hunched back. She probably was very self-conscious about the way that she looked. She probably knew everybody was looking at her. She heard every little toddler say something inappropriate to their mom about her. She probably experienced constant pain, which distracted her from concentrating in the midst of a service. Her walk, her, it was a difficult walk. I mean, it, there's no rides to church. Like, she had to walk to church. And she couldn't even look up front to see what was going on. But in spite of those things, all of the potential excuses not to go, she was there to worship worship God. You know, I pray every Sunday that there's an excitement then when we gather. It's not that we have to go to church. We get to come to church. We get to gather as the redeemed community of Christ, and we get to worship our God. That is special and should be invigorating, not a task to accomplish This woman in our text is an incredible reminder that no matter the season that life has brought you, God's still worthy to be praised. You know, I'm, I'm an unashamedly big fan of the TV show, The Chosen. Some of you may have already seen this. If you haven't, it's an app that you can download on your phone, and it's a multi-season series on the life of Jesus Christ. Now, look, I get it. There's a lot of shows and a lot of movies about the life of Jesus that are really cringeworthy, but like this one is really different. Um, they take the time to fill out characters' personalities and their backgrounds and some story that just makes the Bible come to life, and it is awesome, and it's free. But here's why I'm highlighting this. One of the things that this show does that I think is just an absolute home run is they highlight the personality, the character, and the compassion of Jesus Christ unlike anything I've ever seen before. I mean, there's there's two seasons in literally every show I've cried. Like, it is awesome. They do such a great job of highlighting what it's like to live counterculturally in that world and for Jesus to move towards the brokenhearted, to move towards the lame, to move towards the outcast. The compassion on display in the show is incredible. And in our passage today, Jesus reveals that same compassion, and I don't want us to miss it just simply reading the facts. Think about this. This miracle is unsolicited from Jesus. As Spurgeon noted, this is a woman searching for her grave, She's not exhibited any type of faith other than being in the synagogue. 
she did not appeal to Jesus to heal her, she probably couldn't even see him eye to eye since she was doubled over. And in verse 12, it says, Jesus saw her. He saw her in all of her pain, in all of her disability, in her weakness, and he did everything necessary to heal her. He did not ask about her faith. He did not ask her if she wanted to be healed like he does in other places. He simply proclaims, woman, you are free of your disability. Morgan Campbell highlights this. He says, if there is a man or a woman in any assembly of human beings more in need than any other, that is the man or woman that Jesus is after. And that's true here today. Perhaps like this woman, you have come to church for years with a spiritually bent over condition in your life. Perhaps people have ignored your need or you have been helpless to do anything about it. But friend, I want to remind you, Jesus sees you and he wants that lie that exists in the world that Jesus doesn't care about that pain to be eradicated. He doesn't want that anywhere near you. There is hope in his word. In the scriptures, God always has time for those who need his tender touch. And that access is available to you in his word. The healing of this woman is an inst- a striking instance of the Lord's love and compassion for his people. If he desired so much for a person, completely unsolicited as he did for this woman, how much more does he do for those who seek him out in prayer? This miracle vividly shows that any time is appropriate to come to him. Verse 12 tells us Jesus saw her and then he extends his compassion to her. He called out to her and tells her, woman, you are free of your disability. And the woman, presumably at the back of the synagogue where the women sat together, he draws her forward. He calls her to the front and he addresses her. Jesus' call And liberating words demonstrate his great compassion and his unrivaled authority over the power of darkness. It says he laid his hands on her. The fact that he touches her could have been seen by everyone in the synagogue and it would inform the skeptical audience that it was Jesus' power that healed this woman. Can you imagine that moment for just a second? That this woman walks forward And Jesus puts his hand on her and she stands up and she looks him eye to eye. Our text tells us that she began to glorify God. And I love what Kent Hughes said about this. He says, no reporter could have ever written down all of her praise because she she spoke not only with words, but with her eyes, her hands, her upright body, her rising soul. She was, in those moments, the most eloquent woman in the universe. And then you get the text shift to the synagogue leader, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, and he responds by telling the crowd, 
okay, the crowd. He doesn't even go directly to Jesus. He, he doesn't address Jesus head on. He just starts talking to the crowd past Jesus. There are six days when the work should be done. Therefore, come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. Can we talk for a minute about the blindness of this human being? <laughs> I'm going to go back to Kent Hughes again. He, he shares my frustration in this moment. He says, what a slab of ecclesiastical granite. This man has no heart to pity the poor bent woman's plight. No eye for the beauty of Christ's compassion. No soul to rejoice with the woman's deliverance. No ear for the music of her praise. He was a chicken-hearted religious snob. He did not lower himself to address Jesus directly, but turned to the people. His heart pumping formaldehyde. His breath is arsenic. He fancied that he was a lover of the law and and a protector of it. However, his lack of love for the woman showed that he did not love his neighbor as himself, indicating that he did not love God. The irony of the leaders of the synagogue's definitional work is literally Jesus touches her and he heals her. You see, this still exists in Jewish culture today. Like Kelsey and I in 2019 went to Israel and we were heading into the Sabbath and our trip leader said, hey guys, no matter what room you were in, what, what floor you're on, if you're on the sixth floor, just take the stairs to dinner, take the stairs to breakfast, don't get on the elevator. And we were kind of like, what? Like, I don't get that. And then our tour guide said, well, see, on the Sabbath, it's inappropriate to create anything new and you cannot touch the elevator button. That would be work. That would be creating something new. And so the elevators in the hotels literally just move constantly from floor to floor, all the way to the top, all the way to the bottom. And so you could get on the elevator and be stuck on the elevator for like 20 minutes, depending on which way you catch it. The bitterness and the sarcasm of the synagogue's leader's speech literally should jump off the page to you. The very sight of the miracle should convince him that Jesus is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. Let alone this. This woman is likely a part of this man's congregation. For 18 years, he's watched her walk into this room. And when she's miraculously healed, he shows no care whatsoever. He doesn't, he's not celebrating at all. No joy. He's mad because Jesus touched somebody. I mean, honestly, how cold-hearted do you have to be to respond this way? So Jesus rebukes the leader and anyone else in the, in the synagogue that's feeling the same way this leader is. He calls them hypocrites. He says, while Jesus does not challenge the law itself, he does challenge them with a rhetorical question that they cannot refute. Jesus points out, doesn't each one of you untie his ox or donkey from the feeding trough on the Sabbath and lead it to water? Is that not work? Satan has bound this woman, a daughter of Abraham, for 18 years. Shouldn't she be untied from this bondage on the Sabbath day? You see, Jesus' point here is that human need ought to override ritual law. 
by highlighting their willingness to care for their animals in a better way than they would for their brothers or sisters is revealing that these people value their rules over the relationships that exist amongst them. Truly animals over people. On the Sabbath, they felt free to untie their ox or their donkey and lead it to water, but they didn't want Jesus to heal this woman who'd been bound for 18 years, who'd been a part of their church body. A dead religion always has mixed up priorities. A dead religion glories when the people follow the rules, even if their hearts are far from God. It is happy with outward conformity, even though the relationships are shattered around them. The reality is Jesus is highlighting his, hey, you know what? The bondage of the ruler of the synagogue is far worse than this woman's. This woman's is physical in her body. His is in his mind and in his heart. And because of his blindness, he wants, he's bound to uphold this law and tradition, and he ends up opposing the Son of God. Luke concludes this story of healing by noting that Jesus' opponents, they're humiliated, but then he highlights that the multitude are rejoicing at all the glorious things that have been done by Jesus. You see, Jesus is, and this isn't the first time or the last that we'll cover this, but like, Jesus' teachings draw a line in the sand. And this passage for us is not just recorded so we can sit here and talk about it and say, well, that's interesting. It's really to ask you, which side are you on? Am I just going through the motions of dead religion or do I have the living Jesus Christ in my heart? A couple of reflections um, on this first story and the, the fact that Jesus draws this line. I want you to see that first that the healing that takes place in this passage, it's, an indic- it's indicative of the heart change that takes place when the gospel takes root in our life. When we become a saved human being, it changes our hearts. Same way that, that Jesus allowed this woman to stand up and look her in the eye. When we accept Christ, we are stood up and we get to look Jesus in the eye. What a marvelous truth that Jesus declares here that, you know what, there is no disability in the kingdom of God. And probably the most powerful statement in this section to me is that simply Jesus saw her. And we've already covered this, why she's present in the synagogue, simply that Jesus saw her and had compassion on her. But I want you to think about our world today. Our world could use this example right now We rarely slow down as a people and see one another. We typically spend most of our time talking past one another. We need to look more like Jesus does in this passage and to see those around us, strangers, neighbors, friends, church family. There are hurting people all around us walking around searching for a grave. And friends, we have salvation on our tongues. The good news of the gospel is to be shared, not just held on to. See others and in compassion move towards them. 
So in this miraculous healing on the Sabbath, Jesus is revealing a correct understanding of what happens when someone enters the kingdom of God. And in this moment, it is the first phase, the invisible kingdom of God. And now he's going to set up a couple of parables, visual illustrations that help us understand what is happening in that moment. In verses 18 through 21, Luke says, he said, therefore, Jesus, what is the kingdom of God like? What can I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the sky nested in its branches. And he said, what can I compare it to? What can I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like leaven that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until all of it was leavened. Luke specifically uses therefore to connect this healing passage to his illustration, the parables here. They're tied together, okay? And I think it's easiest to understand Jesus' secondary question of what can I compare it to? What does this look like? How does it work? And he gives us two very simple visual illustrations. These two illustrations have been subject to a lot of overinterpretation through the years. And so I'm going to try to keep that very simple. The mustard seed. It is a small seed that grows into a tree large enough for the birds to nest in, something that provides shade, shelter, and protection. This first parable teaches us that the kingdom of God grows outward and upward, and it is intended to show the progress of the gospel in the world. Something small grows into something large. The parable does not mention anything about the mustard seed bearing good fruit or being cut down if it doesn't. The lesson taught here is simply this, that from small beginnings, the visible or invisible church shall become something very large. Step back from the text for just a second and just think. You may now not know a ton of church history, but just think from this moment when the disciples are standing around Jesus listening to him share this to where the church is today. One commentator writes this, the progression of the gospel from its original seed that Jesus once cast into the earth has been a great, steady, continuous growth. The grain of the mustard seed grew and produced a great tree. In spite of persecution, opposition, and violence, Christianity gradually spread and increased. Year after year, thousands have become tens of thousands. Year after year, idolatry has withered away before it. City after city and country after country received the new faith in Christ Jesus. Church after church has been formed in almost every quarter of the earth. Preacher after preacher has risen up to proclaim the good news, and missionary after missionary has come forth to go to the places where the gospel is sparsest. Roman emperors and heathen philosophers, sometimes by force and sometimes by argument, tried to, to in vain to check the progress of Christianity. They might as well have been trying to, trying to tide, stop the tide from flowing and the sun from rising. In a few hundred years, the religion of the despised Nazarene, the religion which began in the upper room in Jerusalem, had overrun the civilized world, and it was professed in nearly all of Europe, great parts of Asia, and the whole northern part of Africa. The prophetic words of this parable before us literally are being fulfilled. 
The grain of a mustard seed has waxed a great tree, and the birds of the air are lodged within its branches. The Lord said it would be so, and it is coming to, to fruition. As we consider the mustard seed, I was trying to think, well, how, do, how do I connect this? And I kept reminiscing about my childhood. If you grew up in the 80s, I'm going ahead and make an assumption that you, at some point in your life, had an obsession with the Karate Kid trilogy, okay? You know, if, if you don't know what the Karate Kid is, I'm not sure what to do with you. I guess you just need to come to my house after church and we'll watch all three. Daniel LaRusso, Johnny Lawrence, like, sweep the leg. I mean, Mr. Miyagi, come on, this is, this is good stuff. Somebody in first service said amen, and I said, well, hell yeah, I'm not sure that's amen-worthy, but... But it is good. Um, but I started thinking about there's something in the, the background of all of those movies, and it takes more center stage in the third one, but like, there's this thing that Mr. Miyagi is always doing. He's always caring for and manicuring these little trees, right? We know what, the bonsai trees, right? It's on the back of the, the uniform, like everybody wanted that. As, I mean, I did. I wanted it as a kid. Um, but you guys know the bonsai tree. I didn't actually know this until recently, but bonsai trees are manicured and cared for and trimmed meticulously, and they're kept in very small, restrictive potting plants on purpose. It's to keep them from growing. If you do those things, the tree won't grow. It'll stay the same size. So whatever size pot you put it in is however big that bonsai tree will be. Did you know that if you planted a bonsai tree just in the normal good soil, it would grow to quite a large tree. And I'm not talking like side of the cliff, like Karate Kid 3, like we're talking just planted in the seeds, in the ground, and it'll become a large tree. Because the roots are allowed to grow deep down into the soil. The, the roots want to grow straight down. So I started thinking about that, like the planter box determines the size of the tree. And this first parable is intended to show us the progress of the gospel. And I just started having this thought of like, how many of us need to get our tree out of the planter's pot and start taking part of the kingdom work that's going on around us? I want us to think about this for a second. A couple of diagnostic questions. Are you meeting regularly with believers to grow and to be held accountable in relationships? If you're not, I think it's time. Maybe you start considering jumping out of the planter's pot that you're in. Have you shared the gospel with anyone in the last month? If not, I think it's time to get out of the planter's pot. Do you have someone in your life that you are trying to disciple or at a minimum trying to have a kingdom influence on? If it's not, maybe it's time to consider the planter that you're in. The beauty of this passage is that Jesus is going to make it happen. It's not dependent upon you. Be faithful to the process, and Jesus is declaring, look, I will make it happen. I will make this small seed grow into a large tree. 
The second parable that he shares on the kingdom of God, he relates it to leaven. I read out of the CSB, and it says in that that the leaven is mixed with 50 pounds of flour. You may have a translation that says a peck of leaven was hid in 50 pounds, pounds of flour. Hid is probably the more accurate translation, um, that it's amongst the flower hidden within it. The verb hid conveys no special significance except for the fact that it emphasizes the idea that even though it's out of sight, it's still very much at work. And so too is it with the kingdom of God. The second parable teaches us that the kingdom of God grows inward and through it is intended to show the progress of the gospel in the hearts of believers. Leaven, or more modernly called yeast, is what causes bread to rise. I don't know how much explanation I need to give to this, but like when you make dough, you put leaven or yeast into it, and it has a chemical reaction, and it literally bubbles up and rises. So in biblical times, they would literally bake some bread, but they would pull off a small little chunk, and they would hold on to it. They'd put it in water and let it ferment until it was time to, re- to do the bread-making process again. Throughout Scripture, the illustration of leaven has been used to demonstrate the permeating power or influence of something. And it's used both to describe evil things as well as good things like it is in our text today. When a Jewish girl is married in biblical times, she was, uh, her mother would give her a small piece of leavened dough from a batch just baked before the wedding. And from that gift of leaven, the bride would then be able to break, bake bread uh, in her own household throughout her entire married life. That gift, as simple as it was, was amongst the most cherished that a bride received and because it represented the love and the blessedness of the household in which she grew up and was about to leave, and it also was a, something that she could take from the house and carry into the house that she was about to establish. The parable of leaven is intended to show us what's taking place in a promise for us and what's taking place in our hearts. Think for a moment. Somebody that comes to faith It's typically a work of grace that is in some small act. You know, it's a a single verse of scripture, or it is a challenging word from a friend, or simply they're in a coffee shop and they overhear someone else having a faith-based conversation. Or someone, a follower of Christ, gives an act of generosity to this person that starts something. And then when the gospel of Jesus Christ is shared with that person, if it is received, it is like leaven put into the heart of a new believer, and it will leaven the whole lump. Most of these moments are such exceedingly small starting points in the life of a person who eventually surrenders their hearts to Christ, and it is a beautiful thing to experience Kelsey and I have some really dear friends that are missionaries in Papua New Guinea. Um, This is Justin and Lauren Reese and their son and daughter Paxton and Paisley. 
Justin, Lauren, and Paisley actually lived with Kelsey and I for like almost two years. And uh, while they were preparing to go to the mission field. They now live in a village called Pei in Papua New Guinea. Papua New Guinea is about the size of California. It's an island, about 8.5 million people on that island. And on that island, there are over 800 different language and dialects of tribal language. The Pei village is so remotely located. Literally, the, the closest trade center by a crow's fly is 100 miles away. In order to get there, you have to take a two-hour flight off the coast in a bush plane to land in the jungle on not a runway, on a patch of grass. And then you hop in a boat, a canoe that has an outboard motor, and there's, the river is such a snaking, bending river, it's 186 miles from the airstrip to the village. Five hours in an outboard motor little boat to get there. All supplies all medical emergency situations that you can think of. It takes five hours on a boat, two hours in a plane to get to somewhere where you can get some medical attention. They literally plan their food nine weeks at a time. I know some of you guys are really organized, but that's like crazy. Justin and Lauren moved into this village and spent years investing in the pay people never once explicitly sharing the gospel. They provided cleaner water, basic medical needs, basic like dietary help, and just helped serving the people. All the while trying to learn this complex language that has its roots in, in talk pigeon. It took nine years of learning to be able to communicate at an elementary age level. They've been there a little over 10, and by the grace of God, last summer, they began sharing the good news of the gospel, and there is a church formed in the village of Pei. Indigenous believers, and Justin and Lauren and their team now sit and disciple and care for and watch this leaven grow in this community. They now take their work to translating the Bible for the pay people that they are able to treasure the word of God in their very own language. The beauty and the truth of the parable of leaven here is that it is a work of grace. Once it's begun in a soul, it will never stand still. It will gradually leaven the whole lump. Once leaven is introduced, it can never be separated from what it has been mingled with. Little by little, it will influence the conscience, the affections, the will, the mind, and the heart for God. The leaven in the pay tribe is just beginning, and I cannot wait to watch what takes place over the next 10, 15 years. Wherever a real work of the Holy Spirit begins in someone's heart, the whole character sooner or later is leavened and changed. It truly is, as Paul says, the old is gone and the new has come. So no matter where you find yourself today in your walk with the Lord, don't despise the small moments. Zechariah actually, the prophet Zechariah actually warns us that don't despise the small things. The followers of Christ, we must crawl before we can walk, and we can walk before we can run. 
And no matter how small or seemingly insignificant those glimpses of grace are that you see in your life or in your child's life or a friend's life, that is a reason to be hope-filled because that leaven is working. Paul also reminds us of that truth when he says in Philippians that he who began a good work will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You see, the kingdom of God grows both in visible and invisible ways. In Luke chapter 13, or sorry, 17, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. He says this, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them. And remember, that question is framed in their thinking of a Messiah that will free them from their oppressors. And Jesus' answer to them is, the kingdom of God is not, something, is not coming with something observable. No one will say, see, here it is, there. For you see, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It is in your midst, and it's in our midst today. What's he mean there? Like, certainly there's a, a physical element that Jesus is actually standing before them, but he's also addressing the believers that are standing in that room with him. It is in your midst. It's standing right behind me. Consider the point of these two parables. Jesus stops, and he does this miraculous healing on a day that he's not supposed to do it because he cares about people. And he shows them, here is an example of what is taking place. And then he gives two promises. This thing is going to grow, and it's not going to stop growing. And this thing, once it starts, it is going to affect everything in that person's life. You and I are also a part of this truth. It is in your midst. The visible kingdom of God, just look to your left and to your right. Each one of us has a story. Each one of us has a story of how the gospel of Jesus Christ changed our lives. You know, I, I, I host our baptism class for adults, and inevitably I always experience this. Someone will come and I'll say, hey, you know, tell me why you want to be baptized. Tell me about how you came to know the Lord. And they'll say this, and it, it's very innocent, so don't feel bad if you've said this before. But they'll say, well, I've been a Christian my whole life. Or I grew up in a Christian home. And I'll lovingly say, no, no, you didn't. Because at some point you as an individual came to reckon with the fact that I am a sinner and I am in need of a savior and you submitted your heart to Christ and that is a story worth telling. Over a thousand times over, your story matters. I'm glad you grew up in a Christian home. I'm glad your parents influenced your life in a way that you feel like, man, I've just been around this my whole life. That's great. But know the truth that this, the moment in your life that you recognize I need Jesus is so valuable and important. Followers of Christ are to play a role in making the invisible kingdom visible. We're to trust that the Lord is purposely and intentionally moving in his timing. I don't know if the worship team is around here, but they are welcome to come. Come up. You'll hear the steps come running down. Um, our compassion, our willingness to share the good news is what will make that invisible kingdom visible to the broken world around us. The kingdom of God is on full display when the body of Christ gathers 
The kingdom of God is on full display and visible when followers of Christ share the good news, the salvation that they have on their tongues with the lost. And friends, be encouraged because it doesn't matter if it's rejected in that moment. God wants you to be faithful in sharing it. What's beautiful about that is none of it is up to us. Jesus is the one that's going to move in the invisible ways and the ways that he chooses. What a blessing and gracious gift that he allows us to be a part of that. We get to have a front row seat to watching the Lord do this and make this go. We're going to close our time in worship. And these last two songs, I really want you to consider what we're singing and invest in it. We get to proclaim, praise the name of the Lord our God and we get to praise it forevermore. We praise him for the truth that not only has he healed and changed our hearts for eternity, as he did for that woman who was searching for the grave, but he's doing even something more miraculous through us. His gospel is expanding just like the leaven. He is doing the redeeming work in the hearts of people. And you and I, we get to sing glory. We have no other king but Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's sing.